In today's episode of PageCast, join legendary broadcaster Jenny Chris Williams as she interviews Beverly Ruiz Miller, the author who vividly brings to life the experiences of the Miller brothers during the Boer War. When Beverly Ruiz Miller first began to explore writing about the Boer experience of the war, she read the tiny war diary of Michael, grandfather of her late husband. It led her to the discovery of the other diaries and many more documents. She also records the brothers' difficult return home and examines the consequences for South Africa of the bitterness this war invoked. This is a beautifully told account of the fellowship of four brothers in war, their capture and their eventual recovery. Enjoy. Well, welcome to a PageCast interview, and I'm delighted to introduce you to Dr. Beverly Ruiz-Muller. The reason is she's written the book that we're talking about, which is Bullet in the Heart, Four Brothers Ride to War, 1899 to 1902. And my name is Jenny Cruz-Williams, and it is so nice to be chatting to you. So, Beverly, welcome to PageCast. Keeping a diary isn't all that unusual. Keeping a war diary is a bit unusual, but not all that unusual. But three brothers out of four keeping a war diary is very unusual. Take us through the background to this and how on earth you became involved. In this case, finding three diaries from three of the four brothers, the Muller brothers who went to war, was not only unusual, it was unique. Uh, It's the only time in the entire Boer War that such an instance happened. And I was very lucky to come across them because one of the brothers was the grandfather of my late husband, Professor Ampi Muller, and he'd inherited it. So he'd, he'd had it for, you know, all the time that we were together. And I, to be honest, didn't take much notice of it. Not initially. I am a writer, a, a journalist, academic, and I was uh, longing to write a book about the Boer War from the perspective of the Boers in English, a book in English, because nearly all the books were in English are obviously from the British perspective. One can yeah. understand that. And I really wanted to understand the perspective because I'd never really read that and I couldn't find a book so I thought well I might as well write it and I started to write a book about the worst side of the war what they had gone through what the experience of this invasive war on their two countries meant to them and during that process I began to discover the diaries first of all Michael's diary he was my husband's grandfather we had that very small, it was the size of about a cell phone. Um, but he had, you know, he had, there were 100 pages packed into it. Tiny, tiny spider-like writing in Afrikaans Nederland. And so uh, as I began to write, I really was writing a book about the war, but beginning to intersperse his diary into the sections that he'd been involved in. And then quite by accident, I discovered the diaries of two of his other brothers one of which nobody knew actually existed. So how did you discover that? Uh, if nobody knew what? it existed, I mean, it, it wasn't put on your doorstep or anything like it. Was a, it was a process. Yeah, in a sense it did arrive on my doorstep, but that was an accident. Um, I, I had been for years dragging my husband around. He, he came from the eastern free state near the Lady Brunt area. And he had an enormous family. I don't. I'm, I'm, I'm from an Irish family. I have no 
family here at all. And I thought this huge family of his was wonderful. So I pestered him to take me around to visit them all, to say to them, do you have any war material? Because families tend to keep war material. They, they tend not to discard it because it connects them to something that's sort of greater than they were. And it's passed on from generation to generation. Now, with, with, with the second diary that I discovered, the, the accidental one, it belonged to Lul Muller, who was only 22 when he rode to war, and he died. And so although he had kept a diary until his death in Greenpoint transit camp, he didn't have any descendants. And somehow his diary got sort of passed around and there wasn't anyone really to leave it to. But um, during my visit of the Muller family and Diedrich's family, because my husband was Ampi Diedrich's Muller, so I had material from the Diedrich's family as well, and I worked in the University of Bloemfontein, um, people started sending me things. Oh, we've got a photograph, we've got a letter, we've got you know, some material that you would be maybe interested in. And one day I opened an envelope and a little blue notebook fell out into my lap and I opened it and it was the diary of Lor Muller, the young brother who had died, which my husband did not even know existed in the family. Um, and the third set of diaries, which was incredibly important, belonged to a cousin of his whom he had never met. And those eight diaries had been written by her grandfather, one of the four brothers, Commandant Chris Muller. He wrote from the beginning of the war at Marcus Fontaine to the end of the war when he was a prisoner of war in Ceylon. So his diary, eight diaries covered the entire war, and they were particularly valuable. And I wove them into the story. The background was the story of the whole war seen from the book perspective. Well, I've got uh, friends who've got a farm uh, just outside Ladybrand, and I was talking to them about the book, which I obviously had read by then. I didn't know that I was going to be chatting to you. And, uh, and I just said, you know, I've read this uh, fascinating book, and their background obviously is Afrikaans, and uh, they've got this absolutely beautiful farm, and you can practically walk to the Sutu. It is, it is so close. And, uh, and they went mad about it. And I want you also just to describe Lady Brand because it was so deep in the hearts of all of these brothers and also their comrades from the Lady Brand uh, commando. But it's, it's, a, it's a beautiful area, isn't it? It, it really is astoundingly beautiful. Um, I said it was some embarrassment because having, although I was started school in Ireland, I've lived in Cape Town most of my life. And like all Cape Townians, I think Cape Town's the most beautiful place in the world. And there's just nothing to, to eat it. My husband, um, he kept saying to me, you know, the Eastern Cape's beautiful. Uh, the Eastern Free State is beautiful. And I said, yeah, well, yeah, sure. And then he took me there. And I couldn't believe how gorgeous it is with those great sort of open areas with a Copies sort of seeming to float across the plains, the, the gorgeous buttress, golden buttresses. It is a beautiful area. And they were deeply attached to their soil, their, their, their community, their country. It was a terrible, it was, it was a terrible shock for them um, to have to fight a war that they had not sought, that, that they did not want, and to leave their families, their farms, everything that they had, their children behind, and to have to ride off to war never knowing if they were going to ever see them again. Well, it's, it's really interesting. We started the conversation with you saying you wanted to write a book from the Boer point of view. 
I was just reading Justin Fox's recent book, which I think that you would love. So just look up Justin Fox. There's a whole chapter where he goes to Denise Reitz and, uh, and he follows Denise's uh, war in, in effect. And he, I think it's eight different sites in 10 days. And um, it, it was very hard, but it opened my eyes to, I suppose, a side of the Boer War that actually isn't frequently written about because it is written about from the English point of view. And I just found it, I found this book heartrending and absolutely fascinating from a military point of view and the chaos that they've had to live in, uh, away from their well-ordered farms and everything. Uh, but I found it very, very, very humbling. So there was also another experience that I had, Beverly, and that was when I was on air and uh, on Radio 702 quite a, quite a while ago. And we were talking about family histories and people were phoning in and talking about the Boer War. And one man just said, how angry he was. I mean, and I said to him, but it's a hundred years ago. I mean, why are you still angry? And you have to read a book like Bullet in the Heart and Denise Reitz to understand why down the generations there is still anger, there is still heartbreak about actually what happened, particularly in the Free State uh, and I suppose the old Transvaal um, during that Anglo-World War and the devastation that followed, of course. Yes. Look, all wars end eventually, but they seldom ended well. And this is the Boer War. The Boer War was not an exception. Um, the the British had told the public that this was a war uh, based on political grounds. That was not true. It was a war purely to get the gold in the Transvaal. We all know that now. Um, and they had also promised the British public um, and the public here that it would not be a war fought on civilians. We've heard that before. We're hearing it now. Um, and that's not that wasn't true either. In fact, it was a war specifically fought eventually on the civilians, as the Boers did, uh, as the British did not win the war as fast as they had initially hoped to do. And so the policy of scorched earth came into being, where the Boer, as you know, the Boer farms were burnt down there. All their livestock was killed. Their, every, every living possession that they had uh, was, was destroyed. And then the women and children were taken into concentration camps where they died in their tens of thousands. At least 20,000 children died in the Boer War and probably a lot more than that because many of the Boer women and families knew that the concentration camps had become death camps. And so rather than go into them, they escaped into the fault where they died. And so there are graves out there that we don't know about. We, we will never really know what the death toll was, but what we do know is that between a sixth and a fifth of the Boer, entire Boer population died in a war that wasn't supposed to be fought on civilians. Mm. And you can understand the bitterness of the families who survived and 120 years later are still saying there's not really been any proper acknowledgement of that, and there's been very little understanding of how this war affected the whole of the 20th century in South Africa. I also, if I may, at this point, just point out something really important. When I talk about the civilian population, I'm also talking about the black population. They also were part of the war on civilians. And 
in there were 66 black concentration camps um, built, uh, constructed by the English during the Boer War. And that is another thing that is not often mentioned, in fact, very seldom mentioned. And the conditions in the black concentration camps in those 66 were in every case even worse than the Boer concentration camps, and that really saying something. So there are no figures. The figures are very uncertain because although the English, the English, uh, the Boers didn't call them the British, they, they called them the English, the Engelsa. Um, although the English kept re- quite careful records of the Boer concentration camps, they didn't bother to keep records of the black concentration camps. So the, the figures initially were given like something like eighteen to 20,000 died in them. But we know that's not an accurate figure. It was far more than that. At what stage did you become captivated by these four diaries? Because for me, I mean, I'm looking at pictures as we are speaking of the four brothers. And, uh, and Chris, um, I think he, he, uh, he went off to war first. And you concentrate on the Battle of Marcus Fontaine. I mean, that was its first experience of war. And all everybody rode off and they felt well, they were well-dressed, they were well-equipped for wars, and their horses were well-looked after, well-nourished, and off they went. And then this battle started. And, of course, nobody knew when it ended or that the Boers had actually won. Why does Marcus Fontaine so pivotal in the Boer War? Well, it really was pivotal. You're quite right. I'm just going to hold the book up here for a moment. And these are the four brothers. And the one that we're talking about at the moment is this very good-looking one at the top, Commandant Chris Miller. He was a second brother. This one over here was Mikkel, my husband's grandfather. Peter, who was sight-impaired, and we think that's why he was the only brother who didn't keep a diary. And this uh, young fellow was a little, I've already talked about him, he was the one who died in Greenpoint camp. So this is Bullet in the Heart. The English really didn't understand what they were taking on when they took on the Boer War. They did not understand that they were taking on a country that is virtually the size of Europe. They had, so many of the officers were clueless about how super skilled the Boers were in terms of riding horses and shooting from them. And they confidently told the British public that the war, they they came across, the war started in October 1899, and uh, and that they would be home by Christmas. Well, we all know that that didn't happen. The largest part of the British army faced off the Boer army at Marcusfontein, which is just south of Kimberley. They shouldn't have been there at all. In fact, there's a whole side story here about why it was Rhodes's fault. In fact, the whole war was Rhodes's fault, Cecil John Rhodes's fault. But he was based in Kimberley. And so instead of going up to Bloemfontein, the British army were forced by the rich and famous to divert to Kimberley, where they fought the Battle of Marcus Fontaine, and the Boers completely unexpectedly won. And this was a kind of catastrophe for the British because they now had to deal with the public at home who had expected their boys, to, you know, their young men, to, to be on the way home. And it was entirely clear that this war was going to be a long war of attrition and with high casualty numbers. And they had to start, the British, Britain had to start sending out enormous reinforcements. And this became the most expensive war that Britain had ever fought up until the First and Second World Wars. It, it was actually a catastrophe for them in the end. And they, 
is a reason why Kipling said, and I quote him near the end of the book, the Boers had given the Brits no end of a hiding, which I point out is a rather strange way to describe what was technically a win for the British. But what did they take away? They, they lost an enormous amount of money, and they only had the gold for about eight years. And then Louis Water became prime minister of South Africa. So the upshot of it was that eight years after the war had ended, the, Africa, the Boers took over the whole of South Africa, not just the Free State and the Transvaal. So you, you kind of wonder what it was all about in the end, except the bitterness that was the terrible civilian population death. We need to look at this again today is that old men fight wars, old men call wars. Young men and women today go and often fight them. But the, the bitterness that is left behind them does not last for only a single generation. Generational trauma is something that we today know and understand. Uh, we can see it. I don't even have to mention the places up north where this is happening. But it happened in South Africa. And in 1948, when the National Party came to power, it was on an upsurge of nationalism, which referred back to the casualties of the Boer War. And then we got apartheid. Everything that happened in South Africa in the 20th century can be referred back to the Boer War and my chapter on it, which is called The Awful Consequences, and the consequences were awful. Let's go back to Marcus Fontaine. So the reason the Boers won were because they were entrenched. They dug trenches. Uh, the British... Uh, did not know where the trenches were. They were at the bottom of a hill and they were well occupied. The weather was awful, rainy weather. Um, the horses had been taken elsewhere because for the Boers, the horses were love and life itself. And, uh, and there they were. And the British, there was this huge open plain and the British were just picked off, really, in spite of the cannons. And, uh, I, I mean, it was a, it was a, a proper battle. And... When dawn came, I think there was a date, was it the 11th? I can't remember. It was uh, the 11th. You will remember. Yes. Um, when dawn came and Chris and his men looked out from their particular position, they just looked out and there were just bodies absolutely everywhere. And they weren't all dead. They were dying as well. And one of the things that really struck me was when the Boer uh, sent their ambulance there, in, in previous conflicts with the British, the wounded British boys were actually taken in into families and looked after, and there was none of this this terrible bitterness that there that ensued in this particular war. It was a severe loss in terms of of numbers, wasn't it? I think the Boers lost something like eighty seven. Yes, the the Boers lost relatively few. In fact, um, I I just need to challenge uh, one con misconception that goes on in English war books about Marcus Fontaine. The English did know that the trenches were there. They had been built directly in front of them for three weeks along about 11 kilometres directly in front of them. The dispatches that the general sent back after the battle were, not to put too fine a point on it, lies. And I've studied those dis dispatches in the United Kingdom um, National Archive, the, the original ones. The casualty figures were so bad, there were nearly a thousand of the British, uh, who were not the British, actually. It was the Scottish yes. who played such a terrible part, the Highland Brigade, the Black Watch. The casualty figures were so terrible that the War Office in England couldn't publish them. 
So they sent the dispatches back to Marcus Fontaine and said, rewrite them, which we all know what that means. That means, mm, you know, soft pedal this. And those second, I have read both the first and second batches of the dispatches. They are quite different. And the first batches were not um, available for scholars for many, many years, which is why the second version has has continued. We didn't know the trenches were there. We didn't know the bar wire was there. We didn't know what actually they did. I want to go to, to where the diaries gave you an extra insight into Marcus Fontaine. And these were Chris's diaries. And I've just opened the book at the page where he's looking at the wide, flat battlefield that lay below, and he had such a clear view. We are with him as he looks immediately, and this is under fire. The cannons started shooting at us. A section of us spread out along the ridge where a rain of bullets came down on us. Then we take shelter in the ridge while the shells burst around us. Jay van Royen died. Commander Deirdrefs, who you have uh, mentioned earlier on, also Jan de Vett is wounded. The rest of our burghers go to the south side where the fighting was the heaviest. We get the news that many known to us have fallen, fallen. And this is what he's writing under fire. I mean, this is priceless, really, isn't it? I was always amazed at Chris. Um, look, you know, I think we needed to move on to the fact that they fought many battles and then were captured and were sent overseas to to prison of war camps, and that most of his diaries, Chris's diaries, were actually written when he was a prisoner of war. They were all four brothers were taken prisoner of war within six months of writing to war, the princely surrender. But I was always amazed when I read Chris's diaries while he was still in the saddle, um, fighting, you know, they, they fought eight major battles, the Muller brothers, before they were taken prisoner, at the fact that at the end of a whole day's battle of shooting people, and being shot back at again, he was able to sit down and in this very fast scrawl of his, I captured, it was an absolutely incredible thing to me. But they were all eventually captured at the Punslu uh, surrender and uh, brought down to Cape Town by train and the officers were separated from the men. So Chris being a commandant, that's a equivalent of a sort of lieutenant colonel, a very senior rank, was sent immediately to Ceylon. Um, his brother Peter, quite soon after him, and Mikhail, the oldest brother, Michael, um, was uh, some months later sent to Bermuda. And there, they, they in those con- prison of war camps, they, they spent the rest of the war. I want to go back to um, after Marcus Fontaine and the chaos that ensued, also the chaos around uh, Bloemfontein. And this is where Lul, the younger brother, uh, comes in. He was only 22, and uh, like everybody else, I mean, he had his horse, and he was excited because he, he'd gone to war. But the chaos around the fall of Bloemfontein, the capture of Lady Brand, it seemed to me it was so utterly chaotic. None of the men knew where they were going to be the next day. Lul looked at some of his compatriots, and they were wearing rags because none of them knew that they were going to sleep in wet clothes and fight battles and get caught on barbed wire and whatever. So they weren't equipped as the British Army was. They, they couldn't get food like the British Army was. And he lost his horse. And of all the stories of those four brothers, in a way, Lul's story is the most poignant of all. Won't you take us into that? Because he lost his horse and Boers yes. don't walk. Yes. And, and he had to. And his shoes fell apart. Tell us a little bit about Lul. 
You know, I love talking about horses. I was a rider, so I insisted that horses be well featured in in this book on the Boer War. The Boers uh, used to go to war with their own uh, main riding horse, and if they had a second horse, they would take it as a pack horse and an extra horse. They were absolutely devoted to their horses, and their very lives depended on them. So they had a real relationship with them. They knew them. The animals knew them well. The animals knew the terrain. They were hardy. They understood each other. And there are some, there were some famously, some of the Boers rode the same horse throughout the entire war. President Stain was one. General Delaray was another. So when Lou lost his horse um, at Colesburg, at the Battle of Colesburg, it was a real crisis for him because he was completely reliant on mobility and safety because of it. And day after day, he went out to look for it and never found it, in fact, never did find it again. So he was riding uh, spare horses, tired horses, wounded horses, you know, none of them very satisfactory. Um, And so when he was sent out on a scouting trip at Ladybrook, when they returned to the Eastern Free State, Um, He was asked to go on a scouting trip, and he couldn't get away fast enough, and that was when the British captured him, brought him to Cape Town, which is where he died. So, Beverly, I want to go back to the women, uh, the wives who were left behind, the wives and the children, some of them uh, babies at the breast, and uh, placed in this uh, appalling circumstances. And as you said earlier on in the interview, the last thing they wanted was to be captured by the British and to go into a concentration camp because they knew what was happening there and it was mostly enteric fever and typhoid and, and, you know, dirt and uh, bad water, cholera, etc. And they did die like flies. But some of the wives managed to spend part of uh, the Boer War in relative safety because they managed to make it to Lesotho. And don't forget Lady Brand is almost in the foothills of Lesotho. Tell us a little bit about what happened to them, because they survived by, I don't even know how they survived, actually. The, uh, it was really extraordinary. And um, the, the, I think the person that you're speaking to about who, who buried her, her wedding china um, in, in, on the farm before when the war began was nearly, oh. was Michael's um, uh, wife, um, my husband's grandmother. And she had two little boys, one of whom, both who were born just at the beginning of the war, one of whom was my husband's uh, father. And he, she went on the run with her sister and these two little boys, um, the three-year-old, Peter, my, my husband's grandfather, uh, father, and, and a newborn baby who was born the day after Marcus Fontaine on the 12th of December. So they were really incredibly small. They were absolutely terrified of being taken prisoner. The farms, everything had been, they'd lost everything. Literally, absolutely everything on the farm had been destroyed. And so they tried to live between what was, had become the front line. And so, you know, this was, they were without food, without, you know, water, without clothing, without shelter, although local people where they could always help them. It was a very scarring experience for the children. My husband's father, Peter, was, as I said, about three years old, never forgot it. He remembered seeing that the most frightening thing that he remembered seeing was men with beards and frocks. These were obviously the high, the Scottish <laughs> brigade in men with kilts. He remembers, you know, sort of screaming in fright when he saw them. But there was also another tragic little story where he had his little dog with him. 
And while they were hiding during a, a, a battle between the front lines, the little dog escaped and ran away and was shot and killed in front of him. You know, for the he lived until his 80s, and for the rest of his life, he never forgot his little dog being shot to death in front of him. The two wives of, of Chris and Michal managed to escape over the Caledon River into Lesotho, or Basutu land as it was called then, along with quite a number of other families, including the Diedrichs family, who the survivor women, who were given refuge there by the local Basutu chiefs, with whom they had very good trading partnerships. And my husband's mother, Marta Diedrichs, was actually born in Lesotho in 1901 under the protection of a Sutu chief. So if it hadn't been for him, she would not have lived and neither would my husband. It is a part of the story we don't know about. No, and obviously there are books there and uh, that need that need to be written and possibly by you, but I don't know whether there's documentation. Everywhere there were people struggling to survive. The husbands were in prisoner of war camps and uh, and they weren't fed particularly well as well. So, so the whole thing is they were desperate about their wives, about their children, but they were still getting letters. So in the midst of all this chaos right across the country, um, the men, the prisoners of war were getting letters. The Postal Service worked then better than it works today. Always found it absolutely fascinating. I actually have some of the letters that were written, particularly between the brothers, you know, from Ceylon to Bermuda and also letters written by Ampi's uh, grandfather, Michael, to his wife back in Ladybrunt. And these letters were actually delivered. I also have the envelopes, and they're stamped all over them with, you know, passed by a censor or in the front of it from his mother, you know, with the prisoner of war name on it. But they were actually delivered. And yes, the awful thing is that we have to, when we reflect back, um, the personal service did, in fact, work better then than it's working today, which um, I don't know what it says about us, but uh, it was uh, a real, those letters were an absolute lifeline for prisoners. And I think they always have been in every war. It's what connects you back to home and what you long for and just uh, the hope that you will one day be able to return. So as we come to the end of the brothers' actual fighting period during the Boer War, I mean, I think six months, and they were all captured. And the Boers were being captured in huge numbers uh, when General Tronier was um, um, surrendered. I think there were thousands of Boers who were taken to prisoner of war camps, uh, initially to Cape Town. Then some of them were put on ships that didn't leave the harbour. Then others were put on ships that did. Lul, of course, 22, he died of typhoid in Greenpoint camp, which sounds horrendous. And the other brothers went to Ceylon, where it wasn't too bad, and also uh, Bermuda. So they were not living in luxury, but some of them managed to end the war for themselves better off in terms of education and, I suppose, being more reflective about what they had actually gone through. But again, Chris comes to mind because he seems to be so outstanding. Chris was particularly lucky, and I don't think what happened to him was reflective of the majority of the prisoners of war. He was a very high-ranking soldier. And according to British, the Boers had a civilian army, and their leaders were elected by their men, and they provided all their own clothing, food, horses, everything else. The British had a very, were looked after by the British Empire, very rich. 
And there was a very hierarchical, very structured army. And the Boer officers that were captured were treated by the British army in the same way as they would treat their own officers. So straight away, Chris had a great advantage in that he was given high officer status. He was allowed, uh, when he went to Ceylon, to Deir Talawakan, which is high up in the mountains. He was allowed out on parole every day. He was able to take courses in languages and uh, various subjects that he was interested in. He was he, he was allowed to wander around, meet people, buy fruit, um, etc. So th- that wasn't necessarily representative of the you know the ordinary POWs in the camps, but the officers were particularly well treated. Michael, on the other hand, the my husband's grandfather was sent to Bermuda, and that those that, that was a very difficult place to be a prisoner of war because they were put on islands just off the coastline of Bermuda, which were only minusculely above sea level. Um, and they were they were not comfortable camps, and there was very, very little for them to do there. Um, and so some of the people in Bermuda used to supply them with books and, you know, other things, um, and the children. There were children in the prisoner of war camps as well, um, and some of the good women in Salon, Bermuda, St. Helena, and so on, um, made sure that, you know, the children sometimes had little treats and so on. It's quite horrifying to think that there were some very small children in those prisoner of war camps overseas, and some of them died there. What do you think this book, what do you want this book to actually do? Do you want it to be read by people like me who know it more from the Boer War, more from the British point of view? Um, what do you want the book to do? I Well, first of all, I think that I'd like to take the glamour out of war. I think that, as I say in the book, many young men go off to war as if it's a bit of a big adventure. Uh, they get to see the world, they get out, they ride off with their horses or in these days their tanks or whatever it is and their guns, and they think it's going to be wonderful and heroic and they're going to come back with a medal on their on their um, lapels. Old men and mothers and women know uh, although, of course, women do fight these days in wars, know a little bit better about this. Wars are not glamorous. They are awful. They kill a lot of people. Um, And at the end of it, no one is usually better off than they were in the beginning. And I also wrote the book because I wanted to make sure that people who read not only a story of the English version of the Boer War know that those versions are in quite considerable degree inaccurate. We, I understand why propaganda or propaganda happens in all wars. So they were writing to a particular audience. But a lot of the information in it is just plain wrong. And secondly, to, to help people understand why the disaster of apartheid happened in South Africa and why South Africa suffered so much throughout the whole of the 20th century, we can trace that back to the chapter that I call the awful consequences, which is what happened after the war and why. And I, you know, Archbishop said to me that we will never understand each other until we understand each other's stories. So I suppose really that's why I wrote the book. Well, I mean, I'm just looking at a, a photograph of um, of Chris Muller in 1929, of Peter Muller um, shortly after the war in 1903. But they didn't come back to what they left behind. And that is also a story that I don't think has been fully explored um, in, in terms of South African history. But Beverly, you've written such a fabulous book. I've read every single page and I'm sure 
I'm going to return to it. And I'm sure some of PageCast listeners are going to be doing exactly the same. So Beverly, Ruiz Muller, thank you very much indeed. And let me give you the details of the book again. And it's Bullet in the Heart, Four Brothers Ride to War, 1899 to 1902. And it really is just a remarkable, heart-rending story. Thank you very much, Jenny. And uh, I'd like to thank Jonathan Ball as well for publishing it. Um, And it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. Thanks for listening to this episode of PageCast. We love hearing from you. So if you'd like to get in touch, please contact us at pagecastpodcast at gmail.com. Until next time, keep reading and listening.